0: Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. This episode is the second of three mini-episodes on the topic of fairy tales and poetry. Basically, I'm looking at some of the similarities between fairy tales and poetry and how you might be able to use the tools of poetry to retell a fairy tale better. I'm exploring those tools of poetry by closely examining the source of the most beautiful poetry ever written, which is the poetry of scripture. For more of an explanation, please see the first mini-episode of this series, Learning from the Rhythms of Genesis 1. In this episode, I'll read Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8 out loud from the English Standard Version, discuss its content, structure, meaning, and application, and then talk about how artists can learn from it. I'll talk more about repetition, but the theme for this episode is word choice. So here's Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8 from the English Standard Version. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. context. So first, here's a summary of Ecclesiastes leading up to this point. The preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, declares all is vanity in chapter one. He describes the cycles of creation, the wind going around, the sun rising and setting, the rivers filling the sea but never filling it up, and he introduces those things as vanity and concludes that they are weariness. He also sees vanity and a striving after wind in the pursuit of wisdom, pleasure, and toil in chapters 1 and 2. But at the end of chapter 2 is a crucial turnaround. The preacher repeats some of the same actions he's described before with the opposite point of view. He says, quote, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So, some of those same things, a toil primarily, that he previously described as vanity and weariness and striving after wind, at the end of chapter 2 have nothing better and are from the hand of God. And it's here that we get to the passage I'm focusing on, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, a time and a season for every matter under heaven. So in this brief passage, structurally, we have 14 complete units. So I'm calling a unit a single, a time for this and a time for that. Um, So 28 actions described in all. And the units are made of antithetical parallels. Um, In other words, the second thing is the opposite of the first thing, a time to be born and a time to die. When I first reviewed this passage, I started assigning positive and negative values to each thing. Uh, For example, to be born seems positive, to die feels negative. But I had to stop doing that because I realized that's not the emphasis of the passage. The, The structure, the literary structure, is the same for each unit. There's no extra emphasis or commentary given to any one thing. The list encompasses most human activities every day and once in a lifetime. Birth and death and planting and plucking up and so on. Putting this passage in the context of the preacher declaring all is vanity but then recognizing good things coming from the hand of God, I would lay it beside chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes and see chapter 3 as a hopeful refutation or a second more thoughtful look at the same phenomena described in chapter 1. So rather than a dismal cycle of vanity, weariness, and toil with nothing new and all leading to death, In chapter 3, life has this steady, orderly rhythm. After reading the days of creation in Genesis 1, and I discussed those in the last episode, I couldn't help but notice something in chapter 2. In his pursuit of earthly pleasures, the preacher builds houses, plants vineyards, makes gardens and parks and plants in them fruit trees, makes pools to water the trees, buys male and female slaves, and has slaves born in his house. Has great possessions of herds and flocks, gathers silver and golden treasure, gets singers both men and women, and concubines, and finds pleasure and reward. But at the end of all of that, he says, all is vanity and a striving after wind. When I went through Genesis 1, I talked about the blessing after the six days of creation. Um, God made his creation, and as the capstone and the climax, he made man, and he blessed man. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then he has instructions about having dominion over the earth and its creatures. And to summarize all of it, God calls it very good. In contrast, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing something similar and and, and obeying that mandate in certain ways. He's being fruitful multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. He's making things like God made things. He's planting things that reproduce on their own, like fruit trees. He's organizing and separating things and also collecting and gathering. But in a post-Genesis 3 world that has sin and death, he finds all of this vanity. He cannot let God call it good because the preacher is a man and not God and he will die. It's when the preacher... Does what he he should do. He looks to pleasing God and accepting pleasure and toil from the hand of God, that he finds nothing better and an orderly season for every pursuit. I see as the author's main point in chapter three, one through eight, that uh, we really can't do any any better than what verse one says. There is a season and a time for everything, creative and destructive, ordering and disordering, rejoicing and mourning, in the perfect world God made, even after sin or even accounting for sin being in the world now. Sin makes all vanity, but obedience to the living God gives it meaning again. Taking this in context, I see the role of wisdom and discernment for the person who's trying to figure out what season they're in, what action is best at a particular time. For for everything, there is a season and a time in connection to the lord jesus christ because all of scripture points to christ i see the redemption of the gospel as the breaking of a cycle that could be nothing more than vanity toil and a striving after wind it is in becoming children of god and i'm referencing john 1 again as i did in the genesis episode uh, becoming children of god receiving and believing in jesus christ that we're given eternal life beyond and overcoming this world of death and the dreary repetition of toil I see some interesting main application questions you could take from that main point. Maybe, how can faith in Christ give us joy in each season, pleasurable or painful? Or closer to home for me, the question I have asked and been asked since my childhood. How can I work as unto the Lord, even in work that is boring, difficult, meaningless, and exhausting? But again, as in the Genesis episode, I'm also looking at this passage as an artist. So I'm I'm looking for the artistic craftsmanship used by the author who was inspired to write these words and how I can learn from it as an artist who follows Christ. So as in Genesis one, I see here a perfectly measured use of repetition and word choice. So repetition, that was the theme of the Genesis episode. And I looked at how Genesis one shows a beautiful form of progression in that repetition, the days of creation, which are so orderly and um, and so so set, uh, using the same words in their introduction and conclusion, but each creational day growing more complicated as the Lord builds on what he has made, so that the climax is the creation and blessing of man made in the image of God. But the phrasing here in Ecclesiastes 3, the repetition, is, is perfectly exact. It's not switching up the structure at all. It's, it's consistent at the very end. So it becomes a perfect rhythm, a song. It has um, a steadiness and a steadfastness uh, in contrast to the growing complexity of Genesis 1. And the parallelism and its even pattern gives me the sense of of peace and rightness, an orderly world, even in the midst of declarations of of vanity, as I said. So looking at this technique, this, this perfect repetition in contrast to the kind of building, progressing repetition of Genesis 1, it opened my mind to the possibilities of repetition. So definitely progression, but also the building of an atmosphere as you're telling a story in a work of art. Because the fun thing about repetition is you can harness its power in different directions. You can have joyful repetition, some hopeful thing like a symbol in a treasure hunt or a recycled phrase that characters use to recognize or encourage each other. Ominous repetition, the drum beats of an enemy, or better yet, an unknown enemy. Mysterious repetition that creates a trail of clues. Using the same words, phrases, lines of dialogue, descriptions or images, can bind your fairy tale retelling together so it feels right. Secondly, again, more of the main theme for this episode, word choice. Every word in Ecclesiastes 3 becomes bigger because it stands alone and it's in such a simple structure. Mourning, dancing, killing, healing, casting away stones, gathering stones together. All of these speak to greater realities. And again, in just such a, a simple, vivid, deep structure. In their simplicity, they're they're fathoms deep. When I brainstormed this episode and wanted to talk about word choice in relation to fairy tale retellings, I thought of a conference session I attended a few years ago. It was a session on Tolkien and language at the Square Halo Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and it was February. It was that kind of very grim, cold February that the New England and mid-Atlantic states are so used to, that, that gray, embittered frigidness that sparkles when it's sunny, but when it's overcast, it's just dour. Christine Perrin, a teacher and poet, beautifully described Tolkien's passion for language and his understanding of poetry as a means of perceiving the true, the supernatural, and the wondrous. Her talk is printed fully in a book that they gave us, J.R. Tolkien and the Arts, which is published by Square Halo Press. So I'm going to quote directly from that book, and I definitely encourage you to get a copy because her writing is excellent, and there are a lot of other great essays in there. So on the subject of word choice in relation to this episode, I'll quote from just one section with a little bit of paraphrasing. So Perrin takes the time to explain the etymology of the word desire she says it quote traces its line back to the latin word desiderare de down situs star meaning of the stars therefore to desire suggests that human longing is mixed up with the stars themselves so skipping a small section of her, of her work this is a small taste of the former unity of relationship between ourselves and the heavens that is still buried in the word desire and through its etymology, we are able to grope our way back toward an understanding of the whole that language can provide. Her essay includes a lot more. She talks about naming, myth-making, human memories buried in common words, uh, but that gives you a little taste. So thinking of all of this, inspired by the perfect rhythm of Ecclesiastes 3, as well as its perfect use of words, Here's a recommendation for using the tools of poetry when you're trying to retell a fairy tale in the light of scripture. Steward and cultivate your language. Not every writer or poet is endlessly meticulous and thorough. Everyone has a different style, but it matters to think about your dialogue and description and names. It's extra work, but your audience can feel it if you care what you say and when and how you say it. One very particular trick might be as you're taking the text of a fairy tale and you want to retell it, maybe just do an etymology search on some of the words, especially the ones that are less common now, like spindle. There may be memories and understandings in there that help you glimpse spiritual meanings you never guessed that help you see this fairy tale in the light of the inspired word of God uh, with, with greater clarity. Thanks for joining. Next episode, I'll look at Proverbs 8, 22 through 36. I'll review the themes of repetition and word choice and introduce a third intersection of fairy tales and poetry, personification.